the real litmus test between separating the men from the boys, the pseudo-believers from the true believers, is the Word of God. And unless you can take the Word of God and open it and teach the whole counsel of Scripture, even the hard sayings, the difficult things, and not just the things that men want to hear, unless you hear the Word of God in its entirety as it is designed to be preached, you'll never separate the true from the false, and the pseudo-believers will begin to stack up. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part Four. We have so far seen Jesus tell the assembled crowd that He is the bread of life, and if they want eternal life with the Father, they must eat and drink His blood. This preaching does not sit well with some and we pick up now with the reaction of those in attendance. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, obviously, I gave you seven reasons last time again why you can't take this literally. What does it mean to literally eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Lord Jesus? Well, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And there's a promise attached to the eating and drinking of the flesh and blood of Christ. Namely, I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 40, he's already said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The same promise. And so what one means, the other must mean. The two are equated. The eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood is the same as looking to the Son and believing on him. It's a metaphorical way of describing belief in him. Jesus is saying, in essence, just as you take food within yourself and it becomes part of you, so when you receive me within yourself, I impart new life to you. And then John notes verse 59 where we finished. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, that's not just filler. That's a very, very important verse because he is noting for us the locale where there is a major turning point in the life of our Lord. Now, that's the sermon. And with that sermon comes three responses, three reactions, the same kind of reactions that people give today when they hear the message of Christ. There's dissension by some, there is a deeper dedication by others, and there is a diabolical deception by still another. So let's begin by thinking about the dissension among the curious. There in your note-taking outline, the first point, the dissension among the curious. Look again at verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement, that is, eating his body, drinking his blood. Who can listen to it? Now, who are these disciples? Well, he's not talking about the 12, as the context will show. He is talking about those who loosely followed the Lord Jesus. Understand that when you see the word disciple in the New Testament, it's not always a reference to the 12, and very often not a reference even to a believer. Just as we saw in chapter 2, there is spurious belief, intellectual assent only to the claims of Christ, and true belief. Even so, there are phony disciples and true disciples. Real believers and false believers. Now, the word disciple, Greek word, mathetes, simply means a learner. 
a learner or a follower. And so there are people in the New Testament who learn of Christ. They follow him around listening to what he has to say. And so they are called disciples. The fact that they follow does not qualify, qualify what kind of following they do. Please notice, he's going to uncover their motives here. He's going to show that it's a spurious kind of following, that it's not a genuine following. Paul speaks of those who are always learning, but who never come to a knowledge of the truth. You can be like that person today. You can come here, you can hear me preach, you can learn and not come to a knowledge of the truth. And so these people, when they hear the Lord and what he has to say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? It's difficult. The King James says it's hard. Doesn't mean it's difficult in terms of being able to understand. It's a Greek word that means it's intolerable. It's offensive. It's hard to accept. Oh, certainly. There are parts of the sermon that were difficult to, to break into. But the parts that they did understand really bothered them. The problem, as we've studied in these last three weeks, is that they were more interested in food and the Lord just meeting their needs than they were in the one who's authorized to give them life. And the metaphor here of eating his body and drinking his blood was incredibly offensive to him, to them. And so what are they doing? Well, they, they like his works, but they don't like his words. They love what he does, but when that comes to the bottom line, they don't like what he says. It's really no different today. There are people today who like what the Lord can do for them. They accept a lot of uh, the works that he did, and they look to him. They're in a fix. They've got cancer. They've got a sickness, a challenge in life, and they play foxhole Christianity. God, deliver me. Help me. And as soon as God helps them, God is gone. Verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? The word stumble is the Greek word scandalizo. We get our word scandalized from it. Does this cause a scandal in your life? See, Jesus claimed to be from heaven. He claimed to be one with God. He claimed that through his death alone you can get life. He made the way very narrow that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, equating with believing in me, you'll never find life. And they didn't like it. They were offended. Why? Because they were pseudo-disciples. The real litmus test of a true disciple, John 8, 31, will teach us. Jesus is giving us this just in kernel form here. He's going to expand it in a great way when we come to the 8th chapter. The real litmus test of a true disciple is that you will continue in his word. You're not saved by continuing. You're not saved by abiding in his word. You're saved by the grace of God alone, but if you've appropriated that grace, there'll be a mark of obedience. The fruit of the root will be a life lived for Christ. You will obey his word. And so the Lord asks this question, very penetrating, verse 62. What then? if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before. Now, Jesus is talking about going back to heaven, about ascending to where he was before. Now, other religious figures had ascended to heaven, and the Jews knew that. We know Enoch did. We know Elijah did. Uh, the tradition of the Jews is that Moses ascended, 
ultimately, and they may be right. Jude 9 describes a, a fight that the devil had with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses, and they've written in their pseudepigraphal literature a, a book called The Ascension of Moses. I, I don't know. Maybe it's true. It's a tradition. But in either case, the statement that Jesus makes sets him apart from anyone else. Because he's not just talking about ascending to the Father. He's talking about ascending from the place where he once descended. He's making a claim to eternality, to deity, to preexistence. And of course, this puts him in a class all by himself. What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Now, in the original, the question is left open so that you can take it in one of two ways. And by design, the Lord doesn't finish the question. Is he asking if then, when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, will you be convinced? Or is he asking if then, when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, will you be more offended? Will ascending to where he was before be even a greater offense, or will it remove the offense? Well, it depends on your response to the cross. Now, remember, we already saw, we already saw in John's Gospel, the third chapter, that John the Apostle puts the crucifixion together with the ascension. He put the, the way of suffering to the pathway of glory. And that was not unique to John. It was a common principle that runs all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. There's many that we could cite, but let me give you one example. Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, in the 52nd and 53rd chapters, you have a prophecy of Messiah. In those two chapters, it's like an eyewitness 700 years before Christ standing at the foot of the cross explaining all that is going to happen 700 years later there on Mount Calvary. And so, speaking of the Christ, he says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He's going to be high. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to have the name above every name. He'll be at the right hand of the Father, but not before he dies. And so, in the same breath, Isaiah said, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. The sprinkling of peoples through the blood of his cross is the means to this ascension, to this exaltation where he will be high and lifted up. Here's the point. If these grumbling uh, pseudo-disciples find the Lord's language to be offensive, what will they do when he is crucified? What will they do with a bloodied Messiah? How will they respond then? Because the cross is the pathway to the ascension. And that's why the verse is left open, because how men and women respond to the message of the cross will depend how they will answer this question. And so to take away all ambiguity as to what he means, to make it crystal clear that he was not literally speaking of eating his flesh and eating his body, he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, the words I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. So he goes back to their original objection. There's no salvation in literally eating of the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. He's saying it's not my physical body 
that needs to be in you, but my spirit which becomes a reality through his word. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in a life. Eating flesh, drinking blood profits you nothing. Just as the Lord told Nicodemus, it's through the Holy Spirit, it's by a second birth that God imparts this new life. It's the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in your human spirit that will give you life when you trust Christ's death to save you. And the same Spirit who gave the God-breathed words of Holy Scripture, when you absorb those words by faith, you get new life. Because the mouth speaks that which fills the heart, and so the Lord spoke literally the Word of God. Everything He said was not written, but everything He said was God's Word, because He is God. Now, for those listening who knew their Bibles, they immediately picked up. Because this idea of, by faith, absorbing the words of God that you might know Him was a common theme throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. For instance, and there's over 70 such citations in the Old Testament. Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. That's what happens when you become a child of God. When you truly believe in Christ, you believe in his words. You cannot feed on Christ without feeding on his word. You cannot truly believe the Lord. You cannot truly loving him without loving what he said. And that's the problem. So he says in verse 64, there are some of you who don't believe. There's two circles of disciples, just as there are a few circles here. There's the outer circle that in this particular setting made up for the multitude, those who were initially interested in him, attracted by the miracles, attracted by what he could do for them, but they had not yet believed. And then there's the inner circle. They're called the 12 in Scripture. Somebody asked me recently in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to the 12. They said, wait a minute, Judas was already dead. Well, this was a term that began to characterize this group, the 12. Of course, later a 12th was added, but not when he made that appearance. But this group was called the 12. They were the inner circle. They were the ones who believed, of course, with the one exception of Judas. By the way, when the Lord looks at this congregation today, he knows who the true believers are, and he knows who the spurious believers are. He knows the difference between those who genuinely love Christ and those who don't, to those who just have an intellectual knowledge of the facts, and those who by faith have embraced them in their heart. And so Jesus said, knew, John says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. From the beginning, he knew who they were in the multitude, and he knew who he was, namely Judas. It's a picture of his omniscience. He knew from the beginning how they would respond. Verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason... I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. There's a drawing line between those who are drawn by God and those who are drawn by mistaken ideas. Those who really want the Lord and those who just want what God can give them. There are people today who quote-unquote come to Christ for all kinds of reasons. Some come to Christ because they're looking for effects. They're looking for some miracle for some healing, for some new job, for some financial relief. Others come through Christ, to Christ through human manipulation. 
And so all they experience is really a psychological conversion and nothing more. Some come to Christ with ulterior motives like Judas for material gain, but not for salvation. But unless the Father draws a man, no one can come to the Father unless he draws him. He said that three times already. Unless the Father draws a man, when you get down to the words of Christ, the hard sayings of Christ, they won't last. And that's what happened here. By the way, that's one of the principal reasons I am not impressed with this new church paradigm that we call the seeker-sensitive movement in this country. Because while it is producing incredible numbers, for the most part, I personally do not believe it is producing genuine disciples. Because you see, the real litmus test between separating the men from the boys, the pseudo-believers from the true believers, is the Word of God. And unless you can take the Word of God and open it and teach the whole counsel of Scripture, even the hard sayings, the difficult things, and not just the things that men want to hear, unless you hear the Word of God in its entirety as it is designed to be preached, you'll never separate the true from the false, and the pseudo-believers will begin to stack up. I can think of about 50-some messages that I preached last year, and if I eliminated about half of them, we'd have three or four times the number of people here. But the Lord knows that you cannot love Him without loving His Word. And so when confronted with truth, verse 66, as a result of this, many of His disciples withdrew. And we're not walking with him anymore. Those Galileans became like the folks back in Jerusalem. The Lord would not trim his message to satisfy their wants, and so they abandoned him in droves. What they wanted, he could not give, and what he gave, they didn't want. Now, that's the dissension among the curious. Secondly, thank God they're not the only ones. There's the dedication by the committed. The dedication by the committed. Look, if you will now, in verse 67. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? His man had heard the same sermon. Now comes the dramatic moment where he confronts the twelve. Now, they've observed the reaction of the multitude, how they turned away. They observed the reaction of those who are called the Jews, that is, the Pharisees, the leaders, and how angry they were at the Lord. And now he asked, do you want to go too? Now, the question in the original is formed in such a way that it expects a negative answer. But the Lord asks it not for his benefit, but for theirs. They needed to articulate a response much more than he needed to hear it. So Simon Peter answered. And he answers as a spokesman. Notice the plural pronoun we. Circle that in your Bible. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, the question is asked to all, but one responds, Peter, who is really a leader among leaders. I've heard more sermons than I want to hear on the stupidity of the apostle Peter. And really, those who give it are really showing their own ignorance because Peter was one of the most spiritually perceptive men of God that you'll read of in the entire New Testament. Yet he made some mistakes. But in the midst of walking with the Lord, he shows how perceptive he was. 
Remember, it was the night before this sermon. He was the only one who was willing to get out of the boat and to walk on the water as the synoptics teach. So he asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no other alternatives. You alone have the words of eternal life. He may not have understood all that Jesus said in this discourse, but he picked up on the truth of verse 63, and he knew that Jesus' words were spirit and life. He had taken it at face value. He had grasped the metaphor of eating and drinking, and he had seized this inner truth. How about you this morning? Are you convinced that Christ alone can satisfy the depths of your heart? Oh, millions will hear of Jesus Christ this year, but they'll go back to Buddha and to Confucius and Muhammad and Krishna. Others have heard the claims of Christ, but they've turned to the socialistic teachings of, of Darwin or Marx or Lenin. Others to the philosophies of Plato, Philo, Aristotle. Some to the proponents of humanism. They look for meaning in life and immorality and fame and fortune and riches. They exchange light for darkness, hope for despair, life for death, heaven for hell. But there's only one who can give us life. You have the words of eternal life. This is no idiot. He's saying, Lord, there's no other options. He knew that only Jesus Christ could take the sting out of sin. He knew that only Christ could take the gloom out of the grave and the pain out of parting. You alone have life. Lord, to whom should we go? It would be futility to go anywhere else. You've got the words. That's the reason for staying. And then he makes a remarkable statement. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's no doubt in our minds. We have believed it. It's a done deal. And we know it. It's a word that means to know by personal experience that you are the Holy One of God. And please note the order. First, there is the belief. And then there is the experience. You believe, and then you know it by experience. God's proof comes second. His offer that you must receive by faith comes first. And so he says, Lord, we've accepted the offer we believe, and we know it. You've proven yourself time and time and time again. Now listen, that's how God works. Now John, in his first letter, expounds on that just a little bit. You can turn there if you want to 1 John, or just listen to some of these verses that I want to read. John shows first, cognitively, one must understand the gospel as he outlines for us in 1 John, understanding always precedes conversion. But then you must do something with that understanding. It's not enough to know the plan of salvation. You must personally embrace the plan of salvation. And when you embrace the plan of salvation, you know by experience the reality of that salvation. For instance, in 1 John 5, verse 6, he's speaking of the Lord. He said, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. He's talking about the water and the blood that came out of the side of the Lord Jesus. This is a portion of Scripture pregnant with truth. It's an exegetical minefield. I wish we could spend more time on it, but I want you to catch the key highlighted thoughts here. Verse 7, it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three witnesses, there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And by the way, if you are here today, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts you first. 
He works because no man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. That's why Jesus said when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So it begins with the convicting work of the Spirit, but it ends with the convincing work of the Spirit. First, he convicts you when you come by faith. Then he convinces you when you're born from above. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness concerning his son. God, the Holy Spirit, wants to testify inwardly in your heart. Now listen, he says, follow his rationale. If we receive the witness of man, and it's a if, first class conditional statement, that means since we do, uh, and we do all the time. We take men at their witness and believe it each day. I ate in a restaurant yesterday. I had to trust the cook. I uh, flew on an airplane last night. I had uh, last, uh, last month, I had to trust the pilot. You read a map, you trust the map maker. If you receive the witness of men, and we do, if we can receive the witness of men, we ought to receive the witness of God because that witness is far greater. And let me just say to you, if you want to know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, ask the Holy Spirit to help you, for He is the helper. Now, you can resist Him, as they did in Acts 7, or you can yield to Him, you can refuse Him, or you can listen to Him. But if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will help you. He will convict you of your sin. Now, some of you don't want to know Him, and so He won't help you. You've got a choice to make. But if you will allow his work to take place in your life, he will, after he convicts you, he convicts you, he will convince you. Look at verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. First, the Holy Spirit will witness to you, and then he will witness in you. That's what this verse is saying. He has the witness in himself. Because I believe, because I've come to know by way of experience that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, I have this witness within myself. And you can argue with me all day long that Jesus is not God, that one doesn't need him for salvation, and you'll never convince me because I have the witness in myself. And a Christian with the Spirit witness in his heart is never at the mercy of a man who has an argument in his mouth. Listen, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you were to tell me that apple pie is no good, I wouldn't believe you. Now, I had some this morning. I'm batching it this weekend while my wife and kids are away in Oklahoma. And I know you shouldn't eat apple pie, but that's all I could find this morning. <laughs> My wife usually makes me breakfast on Sunday morning at 6 a.m. But if you were to tell me that apple pie is not good or that there's no such thing as apple pie, I wouldn't believe it. I, like Peter, have believed, and because I have believed, I have come to know by experience that he is the Holy One of God. I have the witness within myself. Now back here in John 7. Here's Peter, makes this incredible confession of faith. And I'm so grateful for these 11 who came to faith. You say, 11? 11 out of 20,000, that's nothing. The Lord doesn't need a whole lot to accomplish his work. Of just two disciples in Acts, it says they turned, over the whole, turned upside down the whole world. Doesn't take a lot, just takes the right kind. And you and I are here this morning 
because of the faithfulness of these 11 men to do precisely what Jesus Christ commanded them to do. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 020. Don't forget that if you have a question that you would like to ask Dr. Brogy personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.